It's been a while, friends. Uh, we're back in Romans. If you haven't been with us in a while or you just have a pretty poor memory, um, we spent the whole last year in Romans, except for Advent and then this summer, and we're moving back right in to Romans 8. We have these for you, um, especially if you're new, please take one. If you want one, and we, we only have it about 50 left, and if you want one and need one, please just uh, email T. Sanders, Trip Sanders at Redeemer WS. No, just call the front desk. We'll order another box. Um, we were going to ask for a donation, but grace abounds. If you have a lost one, uh, uh, we'll give those to you too. Um, but, uh, but seriously, if you want one, they're really helpful. They're a little journal, and so every other page is blank, and you can write through it. And you'll need that because we're going to be in Romans 8 for a long time. Romans 8 is a huge chapter, and it's has an amazing amount of content to it. So we're going to spend a good little while here. So um, one theologian says every Christian should memorize Roman 8. So go for it. Um, all right. Let me review Romans for us and where we are and get us back to where are we in Romans? We've got to go back in time. That's what a time machine sounds like in my head. Um, it's the mid-50s. That's 50. It's in his third uh, visit, uh, missionary visit, and he's in Corinth. Paul's been intending to go to Rome, but he's been busy raising a bunch of cash among the Gentile churches because Jerusalem's in need financially, and he's raising funds for them. And there's this church in Rome that he's going to write to, or he's writing to in this, and it's probably planted by the folks who heard Peter's first sermon at Pentecost and there's this kind of power couple of the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila, that seem to have helped uh, that church flourish in the early 40s. But kind of mid-late 40s, the ruler of Rome actually kicked out all the Jews from Rome, which meant all the ethnic Jews, which would mean the ethnic Christian Jews, because they were considered a subset, they all had to leave. Now, there were other people in that church uh, as well, but for 10 years, the Jewish Christian community was not there. But then a new ruler comes, and they start migrating back. Remember, they've lost their homes, or they've lost uh, their property, or they lost their jobs, and now they're trying to co- reconfigure these ch- congregations in a hugely uh, 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 tense place with a breakdown of ethnic and cultural and political and national and religious identities. It's a, it's a massive uh, cultural shift, and that's why even from the beginning, he talks about Jews and Gentiles so much in Romans. And there's basically three types of Christians in Rome. There are the Jewish Christians, uh, who are ethnic Jews, who have converted, and they would be politically and socially on the outsides, at least for this decade, probably much longer than that, but at the same time, they were kind of the religious insiders. They were the people with the Bibles that knew them. Then you had the kind of philosophical moralists, the Stoic types. It was a type of Greek philosopher, and they were kind of the intellectual crowd, certainly had some social standing, And then there was a whole other set of Greeks, which I call the party party. They were the hedonists. They they were the eat, drink, and be merry crowd, and they had cash and power as well. Neither of these groups would naturally be affiliated with each other, and certainly none of these groups would naturally, but only supernaturally, get along with each other. And yet all these folks have all become followers of Christ. These are their backgrounds. And now they have to figure out 
how to live together under the reign of the Messiah. So he's been trying to get to Rome, and not just because there are probably a lot of people during that dispersion of the 10 years that he got to meet while they were kicked out of Rome, but also because he was trying to set up shop. He was trying to establish a really strong uh, uh, western front of the church and and center it at the center of the empire, because his ultimate goal was to bring this good news that he's not ashamed of, of the Father, um, this, this good news about Jesus Christ or of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, the earth, as far as his map or mind could imagine, he wanted to take the gospel to Spain. And so he writes this letter, and he begins this, to set a foundation for them, a foundation that actually unites them. It's kind of a hard foundation at first, everybody's messed up, and so we can all be united. But he's grounding them in the knowledge of the life of this good news that united them and has sent them on mission. He wanted there to be a grace-drenched community that was fostering what he says is the obedience of faith. From the heart of the empire, the Roman empire, under the tyranny of this kind of Roman fickleness, He wanted to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. He would want these new people, this new humanity, to take these roads that the Romans had made, and he wanted to take it to every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, henhouse, outhouse, doghouse in the area. What movie? Thank you very much. 20 points for you. The last guy's lost 20 points on that one. Or better... He wanted to bring the reign of grace as far as the curse is found. Hot take, free of charge. Good theology is always headed toward God's mission. Always. And so there were these Roman roads. They were amazing. They were an amazing engineering feat. You can see it probably, a picture of one. There you go. Um, an ancient interstate system, the ancient interstate system. And the early Christians, this ragtag group of ostracized Jews and, and, and converted heathens would travel these highways with, with the heralding of good news of another reign in the middle of the Roman Empire, another reign, a counter kingdom with another Lord. Hot take number two, God used the infrastructure infrastructure of a cruel empire to dismantle that very empire and bring forth a kingdom of love, his kingdom. That's some Jesus judo right there, using the forces against. But the Romans road, just so you know, if you've been around the church for the last, I don't know, 50, 100 years, was this uh, way of talking, a little tool of evangelism. It was a way to kind of walk someone through some of the uh, realities of Romans and what it means to become a Christian. Here's an example of one. Uh, I'm not, it's probably not clear enough for you to re- re- read, but I just want to point a couple things out to you. It takes you through certain passages in Romans. It starts here with Romans 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it ends, even though it goes past 8, it ends with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8, 1. That is our passage today. It's a way of thinking, a way of orienting us Um, to some of the warp and woof of what Romans is all about. And it is. And specifically, we'll get to our own kind of Romans road in this. 
And this little tract in very many ways is really true. But I want to stop a minute because whenever you have a therefore, when you start with a therefore statement in the Bible, it's actually preceded by something. And that's what you need in order to understand what the therefore is doing. So in, in terms of review and in terms of, of um, looking forward from the therefore, I want to point out a couple things. Now there's this bishop in England who writes this about the book of Romans and about Romans 8 as well. It is by common consent, he says, Paul's masterpiece. An alpine peak towering over the hills and villages. Not all onlookers have viewed it in the same way or from the same angle. And their snapshots and their paintings of it are sometimes remarkably unalike. Not all climbers have taken the same route up the sides of the Book of Romans. And there is disagreement sometimes on the best approach. But nobody doubts its substance, presenting a formidable intellectual challenge while offering breathtaking vision of the glory of God and the beauty of salvation. And that is true. So what I want to kind of do is, uh, in light of that then, therefore, now, and in light of that kind of statement, I want to talk about some Romans' roads. I actually had about six of them, which also meant I had about 6,000 words, which mine shouldn't be over 2,500, so you're welcome. Um, because there's different ways to, to take the lines or take a take on Romans that get you not to a different place. It is always to the gospel and always to the glory of God. It actually even starts in the same place. It starts with God wanting to come and redeem his people. But, and, it's, and so from beginning to end, it's him and his glory. But those paths, as they climb up the mountain of Romans, can take us in different ways, different roads of Romans. So I'm just going to leave you with two roads this morning, unless I can sneak a third one in later. <clears throat> and I'm going to nickname this one the legal road. The legal road, maybe the forensic road, something like that. And please know that these roads are parallel and they overlap as well. But this road starts in Romans, in one, with humanity being created for God's glory, our good, of course, but we as a people, if you remember this back in Romans 1, we, we, we have defied and in fact pushed down, suppressed, and mocked God's law that was written the way he wanted us to live. And it was written on our hearts and plain in all that he had made, and yet we were responsible to it. And this disobedience did two things. It made us guilty, condemnation, and since God always pursues love and justice, it made us in enmity or enemies with him. See, God's love for his good creation brings forth God's anger against anything that defiles his creation. I think Jen said something at one point, you want a God who loves justice even if we're the ones in the way of that justice. And so then we have this outlaw status, out of step with the law. And like any outlaw status, you spend time in the outlaw, your sin increases, and the judgment and the condemnation increases. When we are left in our sin, receiving the wages of our illegal employment, and the wages of that illegal employment 
our death, our further judgment, condemnation. And the flip or the good news is what, what, he, what he proclaims to not be ashamed of in any way is that Jesus has come to give us a righteousness or a no condemnation that is apart from the law that we have so disastrously broken. And now, instead of people on the run, we can come to him and we become people justified, another legal term, like no condemnation. We are declared righteous because of a righteousness, a rightness, a justness in God himself, in Christ. We were on the lamb, and now we are covered by the blood of the lamb. See what I did there? Jörg Gerkner was a part of Rommel's infantry as the Nazis swept across the Middle East and Africa. Finally, Rommel and Jörg were defeated by the British and handed these German soldiers over to the Americans who brought them to the U.S. for imprisonment, condemned prisoners of war as part of the Nazi regime. Jörg was sent to Fort Denny, a prison camp in New Mexico. I think it was 43. In 45, now this is 1945, not 045, um, Jörg slipped past a guard lifted up the fence and fled Fort Denny and found work as a sharecropper. He worked for a farmer, but he obviously was a skilled laborer because he kept moving up, but he got nervous as he kept moving up as a sharecropper or as a, as a farmer because he'd get noticed, and getting noticed is exactly what he didn't want to have happen. And so he'd go from farmer to farmer, always moving, terrified that he would be found out. He's a condemned man. He lived his life on the run, trying to stay away from the authorities. He must have been incredibly athletic, because at one point, he became a tennis pro. Not a great job for if you're trying to hide from people in authority. And, you know. He soon left that job, because it was too public, and he became a ski instructor in the Rocky Mountains. Jörg, actually, and, and a number of other skiers, went in and rescued 200 people from a train wreck in the Rockies. That's when he knew he was going to blow his cover, because there was going to be newspaper articles and all that stuff. So he comes home to his wife and he says, we got to move and we got to move immediately. And for some reason this time, she's not knowledgeable of any of this, says, no. Maybe he was just tired. But Jörg sat down and shared what he had never shared with anyone else in his life. That he was a prisoner of war, a member of the Nazi regime, and a man who sat under the condemnation, I sat under condemnation. And she looked at him and said, go to the Office of Immigration and Naturalization. The war is over. So at 64 year old, he broke down and went to the Office of Immigration and Naturalization. And in not too much time, they actually released him from the charges and made him a United States citizen. I don't know how you feel about that story. I got some mixed emotions about that story. The logic in this story is that time can heal condemnation. I do not think that's true. But I tell you that story because I want us to be reminded of whether you're a Christian and remember it in the past or you're a Christian who's running 
or if you're a non-Christian who's never experienced freedom of turning yourself into authority, that you can do that. Every day does not have to be a catch-me-if-you-can moment. You do not have to live like this. It will make you insane. And in the largest picture of it all, it leads to only death and condemnation. But the logic of a legal system on the Romans' road is not time plus American immigration law equals no condemnation. The logic here is that justice must be served. You were, after all, one who fought for the Nazis. Our crimes against God are capital offenses, and the evidence was in, the judge's gavel has fallen, and there was no denying our guilt. The law condemns us. But instead of the death sentence falling on us, it falls on Christ Jesus. Jesus dies when we should have. So you hear the words, then, therefore, now there is no condemnation. Verse three, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. As far as sin is concerned, Jesus flips the script of condemnation and doesn't condemn us, but condemns sin itself. The gavel is back out, and because of his life and death and resurrection, now sin is on trial, and it, not us, is condemned. In him there is now no condemnation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Friends, where God commands us to come under the reign of his grace, I plead for you to yield. You can stop your running. In this case, the authority that you have to turn yourself into has taken on your guilty verdict and paid your debt, not to society, but the debt we owe him to him. He pays. And he paid it in his own body. And so Christian or non-Christian, so you can stop running. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Every time you dart your eyes from the truth, every time you fit about, fib about your work or performance or your wrongdoing, every time you hide, please just collapse upon to Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in him. No condemnation. That is one of Romans' roads up this incredible alpine peak. And as one, both for Christian and non, but especially for non-Christian, if you've never experienced that, oh, that you would. But there's another road that runs up this amazing peak, and that is what I would call not just the legal road, but the struggle road. If you start back at the beginning of Romans and we, we take another path from, the Rome, from, the Rome, from Romans, the book of Romans, we remember issues of how to live by grace. We see Paul talking about the struggle for faithfulness from the beginning. From this very first lines about his desire to bring out faithful obedience to the ends of the earth or that he's not ashamed of the gospel that leads to the righteous living by faith. 
Remember, in, in, in chapter 2, he talks about how God will judge us according to our actions, and that's a complicated and difficult thing, and I frankly don't want to go back to that right now, but you can go listen to it. It took a while. He's constantly bringing up the value of whether we're circumcised or not, or we're doing the religious things, or how much law we know, how much of the Bible we know, what the, all that kind of stuff. He's, he's trying to figure out, and they are trying to figure out what life together looks like when you got the judgy people, and then you got the anti-judgy, judgy people, and you got the debauched, and you've got the, the, the self-righteous, and you've got the, the p- folks with the spiritual pedigree, and then you've got all that going on with the Bible knowledge and all this stuff, and how the struggle of living together in that. And he talks about two reigns, and which one we belong to in a struggle there, the reign of sin and death, or the reign of grace and righteousness, or the reign of grace and life. He talks about the struggle of flesh, of the sin in the body. He talks about competing desires and the work of the Spirit and how all this works us up into a pretty miserable state. If you remember directly before this, in in chapter 7, is when he goes through this section where there's kind of a torrent of confusion about his experience and the reality of who he is in Jesus. And as a representative of us all, he says these words, so I, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, another way of saying, I see in my body another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And wretchedness there, if you remember from May or June, is not just it's not a word that we think of now. Um, it's not wickedness or moral filth. It's pitiable. It's miserable. It's someone in a difficult struggle. And the struggle we feel is real. And so Paul is answering the struggle with this amazing statement. Basically he's saying, if you are struggling in this fight... There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you're struggling, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Hear that. The struggle against sin is proof that you live under the reign of grace, and that means there is no condemnation as you struggle. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. I'm pointing over here where that that was. You actually live in a structurally different universe. One under the reign of grace. In Christ you live under a new law. And that is not a legal reality. That is a belonging reality. That is being born again, to use Jesus' word. That is about a reign and being under a reign. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What God did is do something the law couldn't do because now in Christ you live under a different power. You live under a different power. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Look around, y'all. In us who walk not by the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No condemnation to be walking in fulfillment of the law. 
I didn't mean to do this, but it sounds a lot like we preached through in Ephesians these last couple of weeks. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Friends, this is radical, but trust the word here that one of the glorious realities of our trek up this God, the angle of the, of the mountain, one of the most beautiful and hopeful things is that you and I in Christ Jesus now live under the reign of grace. One of the great vistas along this part of Romans Road is that the Spirit has fundamentally and eternally begun the healing work in us. You actually now, ultimately and finally, love God's law. You want his ways. Your wanter for the old things is ruined because you are in him. Structurally changed your relationship with the law. Because you've been brought out of darkness into the kingdom of light, you struggle. And when you're struggling, you know you've been brought out of darkness into the kingdom of light. Because if you've been, if you're living under the darkness, ain't no struggle. The king of the age to come, remember that language, the second Adam, all that stuff? By the law of the spirit of life has broken into the old age, this first Adam, and has brought a new reign who has set us free, the scripture said, liberated us in Jesus from the law of sin and death. What we couldn't do before, we are now free to do. In fact, we ultimately will do it. Friends, if you are in Christ, you're not a blind squirrel who finds a nut of righteousness every once in a while. You have been redeemed at the core of the struggle. And when you find righteousness, it's because you've been made to long for it. Praise be to our king. I have a friend in Charlotte. His name is Charles. He is the mayor of Noda. Noda is a lot like West End. It's where we planted our church. At least we called him the mayor of Noda. There really isn't a mayor of West End either. You can see a picture of him in my office. He may be one of the most generous human beings I've ever met in my life. He does widow's mite stuff every day. But Charles was not always this generous. I knew him first, right when I got out of college, when he ran the streets as a drug mule. You know what a drug mule is? Takes the drugs back and forth. People like not one to admit they know what a drug mule is. Yes, you do. This was between the first time he was shot and the second time he was shot. He'd run hard. He scammed a ton of people. He was wise enough not to scam the actual drug dealers, but he was really good at scamming church folk. At one point, he had 10 churches giving him 150 bucks in a bank account that he would withdraw from, and he just had them all schmoozed. He'd sing in the choir, whatever, he'd, whatever it took. The second time he got shot is actually when he was moved from the kingdom of darkness and under the reign of law of sin and death into the kingdom of the beloved son, the reign of grace and life. It was in the hospital. He found rest in the gospel of the words that he had heard some, but then he knew his sins were forgiven and that he'd made, been made new and that there was no condemnation in him. Now, 
the leg pain was pretty significant. He has a rod in his leg now. And it was pretty horrific. And before long, within the year, he was using again, this time for the pain. And yet his heart struggled there, struggled mightily there, and longed for a better way. He struggled with living the old way, but he lived under a new reign. And one night, he was sitting at home alone, lit, and it became clear to him that the struggle was actually proof that he was in Christ, that Jesus didn't just love him when he was good, he loved him when he was high. So, totally drugged up, he dials the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department and turns himself into the authorities. Only a man who operates in there is now then no condemnation in Christ Jesus can do something like that. And this became the beginning of his recovery, a deep and profound and beautiful recovery that actually manifested in fulfilling the law of generosity like no human being I've ever met in my life. He would spend all week, and he's got a bum leg, remember, all week doing odds and ends, not very employable for his records and things like that, but he would go around, it was more like West End, so he'd get coffee for the banker, uh, the bank tellers, and they'd give him an extra buck, or he'd pull out the, uh, um, the trash uh, to the side of the road and get a couple bucks from the, these folks here, and he was getting all this money, and what he was doing with this money, and he would tell you right off the bat, I'm getting it for my babies. Carver and Springer can give you incredible examples of such things, but every Sunday, he'd pull out like he was a dealer, a stack of these dollar bills, and the kids would come running to them, and he would give them the very thing that they would use to give an offering to God. I'm a hustle for my babies, that's what he would say. That's a power of freedom. That's living under a reign of grace that actually fulfills the laws of generosity and the kingdom of life that is absolutely beautiful. And it's because, most of all, he experienced no condemnation. So he was free. Free to use his skill set, which was hustling, (laughs) to get money for his babies so that they would learn generosity themselves. Every week, Christ Central Mile Church received that offering. Let's pray.